So I want to talk tonight, or just do a sound check. Anyone having a problem hearing? Is it okay? Good. Thanks, Debbie. I want to talk tonight about enlightenment. It's a big word, a lot of concepts around it, and certainly over the 2,600 years, well, even at the time of the Buddha and and since then, uh, many different ideas and thoughts and practices, understandings of it in the different traditions and from different teachers. And for each of us, we have a a relationship or a non-relationship to the word. For some people, it's a huge goal, a motivating uh, aspect of practice, the possibility, the reality of awakening, of enlightenment, of nibbana. And for other people, not at all that they're really uh, practicing for various reasons, for healing, for perhaps more calm or less stress, for more understanding, but that enlightenment, classical enlightenment, isn't so much a part of that. But whatever our relationship to the concept is, we all have ideas about what it is, right? Or isn't, perhaps. And a common one, kind of gross one, is... You know, there's this sudden powerful experience, the proverbial lightning bolt, deep insight, deep opening, letting go, however we hold that, and that we're completely changed, and then we live happily ever after free of suffering, right? Some variation of that. Unfortunately, from what I have seen, experienced, read, talked about with other people, practitioners, teachers, it's not certainly not that simple as the fairy tale version of enlightenment. And Jack Cornfield wrote a whole book about enlightenment called After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. And the whole theme of the book is him talking to people, people he knew, friends, other practitioners, spiritual teachers, who'd had deep and profound awakenings. No question that they were, they opened to something, that something significantly shifted in them. And yet, when they went back to their lives, there were still challenges. There was this messiness there. This is a quote from the book. Enlightenment is only the beginning. It is only a step of the journey. You can't cling to that as a new identity, or you're in immediate trouble. You have to get back down into the messy business of life to engage with life for years afterwards, Only then can you integrate what you have learned. Only then can you learn perfect trust. So it's perhaps more complicated than we might think. And perhaps you're hopefully already aware of this, not interested in the fairy tale version. Um, But it's also considered to be hard to talk about. Uh, You know, a mystery, ineffable. The unconditioned, obviously, beyond words. So how do we even have a conversation about this? And there is also a truth to that, that that when you're talking about these deep and and, uh, uh, immense experiences, the unconditioned, that, that words can't do it justice. As I say, just the finger pointing at the moon, not the moon itself. But I've been very impressed by and um, found influential the teachings of Hamid Ali. He started the Diamond Heart School, the Ridwan School in uh, the Bay Area, and many of my friends and colleagues have practiced a lot with him, and I've done some retreats with him. 
And he basically says, you can talk about it. You can find a language, find a way of communicating, and that it's actually really helpful to learn how to talk about these kinds of experiences. And the whole school, his whole teaching is based on dialogue, on these dyads, triads, monologues, where people talk about their deep and innermost experiences, and that it's very powerful to actually do so. It kind of breaks the taboo. You know, we have the taboo about sex, and then I think even the greater taboo is talking about money and what you have or don't have, and then on that list is enlightenment. You know, we don't we don't want to talk about it. Um, and so I've also led, uh, for many years now, a program called Dedicated Practitioners Program at Spirit Rock, which is a very experiential um, set of retreats. They're not in silence. And a huge part of that program is people actually sharing with each other their experience, and it's incredibly powerful. So I think we need to um, let go of that idea that we can't talk about these experiences. And it's and there's also a sense that the Buddha didn't talk about it much. You know that the in the Theravada tradition that the Buddha didn't talk about it much, and that's also not true. He talked about it constantly, and used all kinds of different metaphors and stories and analogies and pointings to what he, what he had experienced to help other people experience it also. And he's got 33 synonyms just for Nibbana, for the, the unconditioned, the unborn, the undying, uh, the everlasting, the peaceful. And to counteract that idea that the Buddha didn't talk about it much, um, Two, two monks in the Ajahn Chah Amavati lineage, um, Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasno, actually put together this book called The Island, which I highly recommend. It's available as a dana book or digitally, an anthology of the Buddha's teachings on Nibbana. So they've just collected all of the places in the text where the Buddha talked about awakening and also added traditional ancient commentary as well as more recent commentary on the, the experience of Nibbana, what it actually is. And so I'll, I'll be use, uh, I wrote this talk a lot relying on um, the te- this text and, and their uh, exploration. And in there, and as I said, in my own exploration, I've just seen that there've been so many different views uh, over the eons and in different countries about enlightenment. In some traditions, it's considered that enlightenment is no longer possible, that the Buddha's asana, the dispensation of the Buddha, has become so corrupted that no one can get enlightened anymore. There's other traditions where you can go and practice for a month, and at the end they give you a certificate, and they say, you're enlightened. (laughs) And that retreat is incredibly intense. The last few days they don't let you sleep, and you go through, you know, most people go through some powerful experience, and they give you a certificate. So that's going to be one of my questions. If we gave you a certificate, said you were in like, would it make a difference? You know, it's because we have, I've been joking with people, we all want our gold stars, right? We want someone to say, you know, it's kind of the blessing, the anointment. Um, there they really do it, you know. You can go there if, if that really, think, you think that would do it for you. You can get your certificate. Ajahn Chah, I've heard, said something like, if you've been a monk in my monastery for five years and you're not a stream enterer, you've been wasting your time. 
You know, this is something that, that is just part of this unfolding. Uh, a number of years ago, many of my friends uh, went to practice and sit with uh, an Indian teacher called Pundaji, H.W.L. Punja. Uh, so I went, and it was very powerful. He's in the Advaita tradition, non-dual teachings, and just that sense of transmission. And, you know, you could feel from him his, his depth of awakening, and he was just really no nonsense, but very kind and warm and very often was like declaring, you know, people were done and there'd be this great excitement and you could tell even the person like, whoa, I'm done, great. And then, you know, six months later, a year later, I'd see them back at retreat and talk and it was really confusing because, you know, they'd been anointed and they still had a mind that got confused or struggled or suffered. So there's just so many different ways of understanding it. There's a Western practitioner, I know not personally, but I've heard of, very deep practitioner, I've no doubt, redefined what our hardship is so that he was included in that definition. Um, So, you know, there's all kinds of ways of holding this. And I just say that to kind of lighten it. You know, when I sit here and say I'm going to talk about enlightenment, you know, my understanding, my, my sense of it, in this big context of a lot of mystery, a lot of different ideas about it, a lot of beliefs about it. What I always come back to, the central point, whatever people believe about themselves or about others, yes, no, are you, is there suffering? Is there freedom in this moment? Doesn't matter what great experience you had 10 years ago, or, you know, your certificate framed on the wall, um, is there freedom here and now? That's what's important. There's this uh, wonderful book by a, a Korean master, Shinul. He's from the 12th century called Tracing Back the Radiance. And the th- his whole theme of his, this book and his teaching was a sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. Uh, you know, we're in the gradual path. I don't know if you know, perhaps you felt the slowness of it, but we are, we're in the gradual path here. Um, his idea was, no, the awakening was sudden. The, the gradual part was afterwards, was the actual embodiment of the awakening. And that you had to learn to act as well as be enlightened. He says, Although she has awakened to the fact that her original nature is no different from that of the Buddha, the beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly, and so she must continue to cultivate while relying on this awakening. So a sense that the the seeing clearly can happen, but it needs time to be integrated, so we're actually acting out of that awakening. So many different ideas about this process and how it happens. Tonight I'm going to be talking about the traditional Theravadan view of awakening, as I said, um, based on the suttas uh, and, and the other commentaries here from the island. And as I said, this is considered to be the gradual path. The Buddha often talked about it being a gradual path, a gradual training, where there are four stages to enlightenment that there's not necessarily, there can be, you know, the one complete 
bang, lightning bolt or whatever, but more common to go through a, a staged development, that there is progressive uh, understandings and letting go that happen. So I think it's a really helpful model. But like any model has its limitations because I actually think there are many stages to our awakening process. And we go through countless stages, countless insights and letting goes that are radical, that are life-changing for us. And that it's a, it's a, it's a constant unfolding in this path. And so, you know, again, I don't want to just fix this is the model, it always looks like this. I think, again, it can look different for different practitioners and that we have to have a, a broader understanding than that. But this sense of the gradual path has some beautiful um, metaphors in the text. This is one that the Buddha often used. Just as the ocean has a gradual shelf, a gradual slope, a gradual inclination, with a sharp drop-off only after a long stretch. And I always wonder, how did the Buddha know so much about the ocean? He lived in northern India, as far as you can almost get. But he often talks about the ocean, the taste of the ocean, and even this idea of the drop-off, you know, the continental shelf or whatever. Anyway, he's omniscient, maybe it's from that, but... uh, Sharp drop-off, only after a long stretch. In the same way, this Dharma and Vinaya has a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression, with a penetration to wisdom only after a long stretch. The fact that this Dharma and Vinaya has a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression, with a penetration to wisdom only after a long stretch, this is the first amazing and astounding fact about this Dharma and Vinaya that as they see it again and again, has the monks greatly pleased with this training. So this sense that it's, it's, a, it's a beneficial thing, this gradual training. And the, another image he would often use is that uh, if you keep walking in the right direction, you'll eventually reach the depths. You'll get more and more wet the further you go until eventually you get wet all over if you keep walking in that direction. And when the Buddha gave his first teaching after his own awakening, and the very definition of a Buddha is self-awakened, that he didn't have a teacher, but after that there was a teacher. We have the Buddha. He found the group of five, the five ascetics that he'd been practicing with previously and trying all of these other techniques to reach enlightenment, and none of them working for him. And the teaching that he chose to give them was the Four Noble Truths, this middle way between asceticism and indulgence and really recognizing the, the functioning of craving and the letting go of craving as being the doorway to this awakening. And in that Dhamma talk, that first Dhamma talk he de- gave, one of the ascetics, Kondanya, became a stream enterer. And the phrase is, Kondanya knows, the Buddha saw it in his eyes that the he let go in some way. That so was uh, impressive. So you can have this scene, the Buddha pre- uh, preaching in, this, um, in Saranath, the deer park, in Isipatana, and uh, the five ascetics under a tree, Kondanya knows. And I always think of the other four. They're like, what? 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 You know, we can hear, it's great, what? And it said that he gave the second discourse on anatta, on selflessness, in that discourse, all five became fully awakened. 
And so it's interesting, there's that gradual, you know, he, he learnt from that, well, one got it, but this teaching on selflessness was actually what was liberating. But also what's important in that teaching is so many people in the text became enlightened hearing the Dhamma. You know, it, it was actually a really common thing that the Buddha would, and other teachers would teach, and people would awaken. So, you never know. Tonight, I don't know. <laughs> but it's, it's not, you know, there's, there's stories of people practicing diligently and getting awakened, but it, what we hear about is that it's through hearing the Dhamma, through that, that uh, process of listening. So what are these four stages? The first one, stream mantra, Pali word is sotapanna. It's said to be entering the stream of the Dhamma, that after that, you know, it's going in one direction only. And in the Buddha's time, large, large numbers of people attained this stage, many just through hearing the discourses, um, others, monks and nuns who were practicing with him, lay people, certainly often became stream enterers, many stories in the text. And a common phrase in the texts are something like the stainless vision of the Dhamma arose or the dustless immaculate vision of the Dhamma. This is what they say. It's a little mysterious, but there's some knowing that happens, some seeing of the Dhamma, and the Dhamma here means the truth, the way things are. And it's said that the benefit of this stage is uh, you're not born again into lower realms, hell realms or animal realms, and have only seven more rebirths until uh, full awakening. So there's kind of a, you know, there's your certificate if you want one, a guarantee of not going backwards. But this vision of the Dhamma is said to arise. So what is it that they see? What is this experience? Again, the island has a lot of... Um, information about translations that in English, just because of our grammar, subject-object, we require a thing to be seen. And it's not quite that way in Pali. It's more seeing happens. Um, But we kind of, you know, just our language makes it then something outside of us that we want to grasp. And it's more an inner knowing. And the central knowing is of impermanence is that all things are conditioned. They arise and they pass away. It's throughout the text that this was a key, key insight of of the Buddhas. And so often a definition, or in some traditions, the understanding of what happens at stream entry is some form of cessation, of just really seeing the ending or, you know, it's a direct experience that everything ends, you know, and in, the, in, a, in a meditative experience, an ending of, you know, the sense doors and consciousness. But there are variations of that. There's, you know, again, debate and discussion in the different traditions. What, what is it that ceases? But this understanding, this deep penetration into impermanence, that everything arises and passes away, and again, not just as a concept or, you know, yeah, the weather's changing, look, it's windy outside, the leaves are going. But some integration of that that is unshakable, that we live from that knowing of the depth of that impermanence. It said that Sotapanna or that experience, people have right view. 
And again, right view is defined in many ways, understanding the Four Noble Truths or dependent origination, not clinging, basically, the mind of not clinging to the aggregates, form, feeling, perception, etc. So again, many ways that the, the Buddha would talk about this, but something gets seen into, something gets let go of in this experience of stream entry. The texts talk a lot about the factors that support stream entry. And there are four typically. Association with superior or wise people, hearing the true Dhamma, careful or wise attention, Yonasumani Sikara. It's basically our mindfulness practice. Samasati, as I spoke about uh, in the beginning, you know, not just being mindful, but wise mindfulness. And practice in accordance with the Dhamma, accordance with the truth, with the teachings. This is what we do on retreat, right? This is what you've been doing here. Association with good people, hearing the Dhamma, practicing wise attention, practicing according to the Dhamma. So this is why we come on retreat, because it really supports these factors that lead to awakening. And what is the effect? What happens? What is the result of this experience of stream entry, this clarity of seeing through? There are said to be ten fetters, some yojana, that bind us, that, that limit our awakening. And in stream entry, the first three are uprooted, eradicated, cut. And their uh, identity view, the belief in a solid or enduring self, doubt, about the Buddha's teaching and a belief in rites and rituals, silabhata paramasa. I'll go into each of these. So identity view or, or a view of self, self-view, sakaya ditti. Um, what it is is a b- belief in a solid, permanent, enduring self, belief in self to be found in the aggregates of you know, the body, I am this body, or on my mind, or my thoughts, or my feelings, or my perceptions. And again, it's helpful, I find it interesting to uh, understand uh, the time in which the Buddha was teaching, where there was a view that there was a solid self. And this self, atta or atman, the idea of practice was that you would somehow release or, or transcend the solidity of the body, and Atman would go join Brahma, and that was awakening. So the Buddha said, no, un-Atman, un-Atta, it's not solid. Look at its nature, you know, it's not, there's nothing actually there. And I, you know, could give a whole talk on Anatta. don't have time to do it tonight. But just to be clear, the Buddha never said, when asked directly, that there's no self. And he said, there isn't a solid self. So we're somewhere in between because there is clearly this relative sense of self that's actually a useful construct, you know, of of the room you'll go back to and the shoes you'll put on outside and, you know, the family you'll go home to or partner or dog or whatever it is. You know, there's this relative sense of self, your memory, your conditioning. Um, But it is just that a sense of self. And what is seen in this awakening is that 
that sense of self is also impermanent, conditioned, and it do, not able to provide lasting happiness. We can't, you know, cling to it and wish it to be a certain way so that we can be safe and protected and find happiness. It does, the self does not exist in that way. And when we have a misunderstanding of self, it's actually a source of suffering instead of being a, a cause for happiness. And so what this seeing is, is to create, to understand a different relationship to self, where we acknowledge the relative sense of self, but we're not fooled by it. We don't believe in it. I practiced a lot with Ajahn Sumedho, who talks a lot about Sakaya Ditti, self-view, identity view, and he's very funny about it, very humble, and telling these stories about, you know, when his personality would come up, and anger, and fear, and judgment, and everything, and finally we said, Ajahn Sumedho, aren't you beyond that? You know, he's sort of, he's pretty enlightened, and he just laughed and said, oh, you know, it still comes up, but now I just laugh at it. You know, so it was like this friend that you had this wise relationship with, but you didn't let it take up permanent residence. You know, you knew it for what it was. And we actually need to have a healthy sense of self to practice. I mean, to do anything really, but a healthy sense of self that enables us to do this work, to put in the effort that's required. I mean, all of metta practice, that's talking about, may I be happy, may I be at ease, and have well-being in my life. So the Buddha recognized that. Um, We don't need to, you know, diminish that. But we just, again, see it as a construct, um, that not something that we need to you know, hold on to or identify with in an ongoing way. And at some point, we let go of it. And not just once, you know, again and again, we see through it as just a construct, that the five aggregates are just this process, arising and passing, arising and passing, nothing solid there. When the construct is useful, there it is, and it's a helpful way to navigate in the world. And when it gets in the way, when it's a source of suffering, when it's an impediment, we know how to let it go. And there's that clarity or or, uh, really emptiness to see the emptiness of that. So it's a seeing through of the solidity, the delusion of solidity of self. The next fetter that gets released is doubt. And this is not any and all doubt, you'll never have a doubt ever again, but doubt in the possibility of awakening for you, for us, and that this this path leads to awakening. So it's really letting go of doubt in the Dhamma, that there's faith, instead of doubt, there's faith, that awakening is possible, and this path and this practice leads to awakening. You know, not not a judgment about how long or where I am, but just a a clarity of faith around that. And then lastly, a belief in rites and rituals as a as a um, vehicle for awakening, silabata paramasa. Um, and again, in the context of the Buddha's time, he lived in what was a Brahmanical society. There was a simple caste system. 
and the Brahmins were the priestly caste at the top of the ladder, and they did everything they could to maintain their status, which meant, you know, holding all of the um, spiritual power and the uh, the any any possibility for purification or awakening. So they were the ones that did the rituals and they did a lot of purification rituals using fire or water or animal sacrifices. So the Buddha again said, no, you know, just bathing in the river Ganges is not going to enlighten you or guarantee you a good rebirth. It's your inner, inner Arya, inner nobility that's the only way it can happen. So he really counted that. And then, you know, again in his time, there were beliefs that acting in certain ways, ascetic practices, you know, there were people who pretended they were oxen or dogs. They would literally live like these animals as a way to awakening. And the Buddha would just say, that's not it. In India today, if you go to India, there are people who, you know, their practices never putting their arm down so they live with a kind of sling and have their arm up in the air or never sit down or lie down. And the Buddha said 2,600 years ago, that is not the way to awakening. So sitting here today, we can say, I don't believe any of that, you know. I don't think, you know, water rituals are going to do it, bathing in, in the Ganges, acting like a dog. But it's surprising when you really look what we believe Perhaps we're conscious of it, but often not conscious of it. I mean, I was talking with someone just the other day about, you know, how many people think, you know, I washed my car, that's why it started to rain. Or, you know, wear your lucky hat while you're watching your sports team. Won't walk under a ladder. You know, it's just almost instinctual. We learn these things. People who say Gesundheit. You know, how, there are some people who just, you can't see, they, they have to say it, right? What does it mean? My understanding is there was a belief that when you sneezed, a little bit of your soul went out of your body and the devil would catch it unless you said, Gesundheit, God bless you. So it's woven into, you know, again, our cultural conditioning. How many of you have crystals or, I don't know, tinfoil hats or whatever it is you <laughs> think might save you from whatever's out there? You know, we, we have these ways that we... Uh, Take, be, be, have these beliefs. The Buddha said, no, it's your inner knowing. It's only through this purification of mind and heart that this opening can happen. And the common description of what a sotapanna is like, again, people, you know, who is it? You know, what is that like? In the text, it's, it's I don't know, not, I'm not going to say simple, not simple, but it said there are four qualities that get strengthened or, or established. Faith in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, again, that that's unquestioning. And then a firm foundation in virtue that a sotapanna would just naturally keep the precepts and not break the precepts that they'll have right view. But even in that, you know, again, uh, in the Buddha's time, it's great reading the text, you know, we just, all these stories of these very human beings, very flawed people. There was one, uh, Sarakani the Sakyan, said to be a stream enterer, but it said Sarakani the Sakyan was too weak for the training. He drank intoxicating drink. 
And so all the, the, the monks and nuns are going, you know, why is he, you know, part of our community? Look at him, he's terrible. But he had so much faith, the Buddha said, no, he's, he's become a stream enterer, even though he was an alcoholic, you could say. So stream enterer doesn't have to be perfect. Not recommending that, but, you know, just to see there was this variety of experience. So that's a stream enterer, Sotapanna. Next stage, once return, a Sakatagami, um, is only born once more in the human realm. So this lifetime of getting to that level and then only one more birth. And it's said that um, they've eradicated autom- the, the first three fetters and weakened sense, desire, and aversion. And sometimes, you know, someone could immediately go to that level and the three, first three fetters will be gone, weakened, sense, desire, and aversion. Sometimes it's cumulative. They go through steam entry and then sakadagami. So what's interesting is that in that stage, which is considered significant enough to be a whole stage, that greed and aversion are just reduced. And I find that fascinating. That it, I think to me what that shows or is a testament to how powerful they are, and that just reducing them, reducing them is enough to be a significant shift in our inner experience and how we are in the world. In the next stage, non-return or anagami, um, after this birth, we're bo- born into a, hum- into a heavenly realm and practice and get enlightened there. And in that, in that uh, stage, you've all the first five fetters are eradicated, so the first three of Sotapanna, and that greed and aversion are uprooted. This is a significant stage. Susan mentioned in one of her talks um, at a three-month retreat, the only question she asked in the whole three months when she was thinking about you know, greed, aversion, delusion, she said, what would that be like to uproot greed, aversion, delusion? And ba- her basic question, what would be your motivation then? You know, what would move you to act? Obviously, something does. I don't know, compassion, wisdom, I think is what she said was the answer. But just to sense into that for ourselves, what, what would that be like? Greed and aversion gone. What would be your motivator then? What would your experience be? But also not to make it something, oh my God, what would that be like? You've all had tastes of the mind that's free of greed and aversion of that clarity, of stillness, of equanimity, of peace, of non-clinging. And these are powerful moments that we really need to recognize, acknowledge, and know for ourselves, even if it's momentary. This mind, it's possible for this mind to know that, to be free of the pushing and the pulling, And we see it, you know, the clarity of the seeing and the letting go that happens. And to really experience that as non-suffering, as freedom. So we can know this, we can touch this for ourselves. And then the last stage, the arahant, arahat in Pali, has eradicated all ten fetters. So the first five, obviously, are gone. And the last five are really interesting to me. The first of the last five, first two, lust for material existence and lust for material rebirth. And not, it's not just talking about of this sort of 
earthly realm, but really about the jhanas and the first four jhanas, which are considered to be rupa jhanas, form jhanas. They're they're very much uh, experienced within the body. And then the second one is lust for immaterial existence, arupa jhanas. That's the second uh, set of arupa jhanas, uh, immaterial, formless realms. Um, And so it's, it's, you know, at this stage, the practitioner's, has has had deep concentration and has seen through the lust or the interest in that. And again, if you remember the story of the Buddha's awakening path, he practiced with teachers who said this was the goal, these, these jhanas, the form jhanas and the formless jhanas. And the Buddha said, no, that is not the goal, that is not the end. So that's what gets dropped at this stage of awakening. There's not a belief that that's the end of the path. But it's actually the last three that I'm really interested in. Pride or conceit, asmimana, restlessness or distraction, udacca. And I gave a whole talk earlier about restlessness because I said it was so deep for us and the different levels of restlessness. Well, here's this last refined level of restlessness here, not released until arahantship. I think Susan mentioned it also. And then ignorance, avidya. It's sort of understandable that at this stage, this is where true wisdom deepens and all ignorance is uprooted. So that's kind of understandable that at this last stage, ignorance would be completely seen through. There would be no more delusion, no more confusion. But why conceit and restlessness? This is really interesting. We have to assume these are very subtle forms of conceit, not just the looking in the mirror, you know, how do I look today? Or as we say, the, you know, gross restlessness. Again, this is uh, from the, the island. The restlessness to which this refers is not the fidgeting of the uncomfortable meditator. It is the subtlest of feelings that there might be something better over there or just in the future, a feeling that that, which is just out of reach, might have more value in some way than this. It is the ever so insidious addiction to time and its promises. So even if there's not a story, it can just be this sense of dissatisfaction of not quite rightness, of not enoughness of this. And that somewhere out there, we're not quite sure where, there's something that's going to do it for us. It's that kind of restlessness. So it's very subtle. There's this great uh, interchange between Anuruddha and Sariputta that I've always liked that speaks to how subtle and deep this is. Then Venerable Anuruddha went to the, where Venerable Sariputta was staying and on arrival greeted him courteously. After an exchange of friendly greetings, he sat down to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to Venerable Sariputta, By means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos. My energy is aroused and unsluggish. My mindfulness is established and unshaken. My body is calm and 
concentrate. My body is calm and unaroused. My mind is concentrated into singleness. And yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging. But wouldn't you like to go into an interview and report that as your experience? <laughs> but he's not satisfied, you know, in that he sees not satisfied. And this is Sariputta's response. My friend, when the thought occurs to you, by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos, that is related to your conceit. When the thought occurs to you, my energy is aroused and unsluggish, my mindfulness is established and unshaken, my body is calm and unperturbed, my mind is concentrated into singleness, that is related to your restlessness. When the thought occurs to you, yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging, that is related to your anxiety. It would be well if abandoning these three qualities, not attending to these three qualities, you directed your mind to the deathless element. And so after that venerable Anuruddha, abandoning those three qualities, not attending those three qualities, directed his mind to the deathless element, dwelling alone, secluded, heedful, ardent, and resolute, he in no time reached and remained in the supreme goal of the holy life, which people rightly go forth from home into homelessness, knowing and realizing it for himself in the here and now. He knew birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task is done. There is no more coming into any state of being. And thus, Venerable Anuruddha became another one of the Arhants. Turning his mind to the deathless element, it's, uh, again, I mentioned it really briefly in my talk on restlessness. This is the stillness. Out of this agitation, the stillness. But to do that, we need to recognize these subtle movements of agitation when they're there. And my theory <clears throat> about this, uh, about why, especially these two of uh, pride, conceit, and then restlessness, and a little bit ignorance, which is just a theory, I want to stress that, um, I've got a friend who says, as soon as we start talking about the mind of an arhant in the marketplace, I leave the room because it's just all, you know, theoretical and debate and does greed and aversion arise and be seen through or does it not arise at all? Is it abandoned? And, you know, people have these very angry debates about this. Um, so this is just a theory, but as I said, I've always been curious about these three fetters and why they're still there. No, the whole t the ten fetters and how they progress. That the first three fetters that get released um, for stream entry of rites and rituals, doubt and belief in self, they're cognitive. We have learned those. They're actually conceptual. And they come from our human brain, you know, of our schooling, our education, our cultural uh, upbringing. We actually, even a sense of self, we learn that, you know, as a baby, they're like, oh, that's me. Oh, oh, that's me. You know, and they, we learn that, right? And we certainly learn how to relate in a social way. Um, we become self-conscious and we take in all these messages about a self and then we believe in a self and it's good and it's bad, etc. Doubt, certainly we learn, but it's very much on this conceptual level. Um, the, the, the empower of this is it can therefore be unlearned. 
If it is just a concept, a belief, we can unbelieve it, that it's actually something that we can see through and that we can see, you know, the possibility of wisdom, of insight, seeing through those concepts. And we've all had that kind of seeing through. The second and third stages where greed and aversion is first weakened and then eradicated, this is the mammalian brain. This is a world of the emotions, not quite so under our control. You know, when greed and aversion come, you can feel that animal nature. I want, I don't want. It's very, very deep in us. Often, you know, not a lot of thinking about it. So it's a primal kind of energy, very instinctive wanting, not wanting. So it's even a little deeper, the mammalian brain. And then the fourth stage, not so much my theory doesn't account for the letting go of lust for the form or the formless realms, but that's really the purview of, you know, deep practice, etc. Really, these other ones I'm interested in. What I see is they're very primal. And this is the realm, you could even say, of the amygdala, of this very reptilian, do I eat it or does it eat me kind of realm. I mean, look at any wild animal. They're, they're um, always moving, fight or flight. Uh, you know, this sense of agitation, understandably, that they need to have to protect themselves, to find prey, to be eaten or not be eaten, you know, to eat something or to have, to have something not eat you, out of this simplest sense of self, this simplest sense of self-preservation in our body. This is in our DNA. You know, not that long ago, we were living in that way. You know, what, 10,000 years? I don't know how long where we were, you know, in that on the steppes in Africa or wherever. So, yes, we've, there's been a lot of evolution since then, but we have that very animal nature still within us. And so it's in our DNA, this sense towards movement, that movement is life. And this sense of vigilance or worry, as I think I might have said the other night, you know, our ancestors, when the bushes rustled and they said, ah, don't worry, what's the worst thing that could happen? Well, they're not our ancestors, because they got eaten. We're the product of the ones that said, what was that? What was that? Let's go. You know, don't even think about it. Let's just run. You know, that's, they're our ancestors. So when you feel that, you know, that kind of, you know, non-story restlessness, even on a very subtle level, I mean, look at a chipmunk. You know, again, I've been talking to people about there. <laughs> you know, and my nuts. I got to get my nuts. Winter's coming. You know, hoard, hoard all my stuff so I can take care of myself. Self-preservation, territorial, mine. You know, my tree, my nut, whatever it is. We have that very deep in there. You know, in the amygdala. And so this is. Again, my theory of why these are so hard to eradicate. Why we sit down, why it's such a difficult thing a lot of the time for us to sit down and quieten the mind. We are primed for movement and we're primed to worry, right? Restlessness and this self-preservation. 
And I say this, again, not, you know, it's just a theory, but for me it's helpful to just go, oh, no wonder this can be so hard. Why the mind moves even in such subtle ways. Why, you know, we just have this simple intention to be present with the breath, with the mind, with the body, with the heart. And if there's the littlest gap, out through that gap, off we go. So it's deeply, deeply conditioned, I believe, and why these are the last of the fetters to go. And so again, some, some compassion, some understanding of this poor mind. And, you know, it's trying to protect us. It's trying to help us. But we don't need it so activated we need to actually, and that was the powerful inside of the Buddha, you know, this gesture of just touching the earth and saying, no, here, now, not moving, seeing through this belief in separate self, in preservation, and that the deathless isn't immortality, it's no longer a fear. It's no longer this delusion of separ- this illusion of separation. So, even after saying all this, I want to also emphasize that Sotapanna stream entry isn't that remote. You know, sure, arhantship, full enlightenment, yeah, maybe. You know, it's quite deep, deep work, but. To see through these concepts of self, to have faith in the teachings, um, this is possible. We don't have to wait for the lightning bolt, you know, that I have this, you know, practice for, you know, eons and intensity of experience. Look at what your actual experience is here and now. In fact, you're on retreat, what you're doing. All of the factors that support stream entry are here and have been for all of you much of your recent life, if not many, many, many years. You know, association with wise people, hearing the Dharma, faith in the Dharma, practicing Yonasomanasikara. This is the stream that we're swimming in. You know, there's a way you could say we have entered that stream. And I don't want to, you know, diminish the power of the, the, the real awakening experience. But it's also true that we are swimming in that stream. And that you've all had times when you've seen through all of these. When that faith, that conviction has been unshakable. When you've seen the self arise and you've looked at it and it's disappeared. There's been that clarity of vision and you know the inner work that's needed to come to awakening. There's no you know, belief that someone out there is gonna come along with their magic wand and do it for you. So it's actually closer than you might think. And you know, sure, all of us may, might lose touch with some or other aspect of it at times, But as soon as you're reminded, you're right. Of course I know that. Things are impermanent. There's no solid self. That this path leads to awakening. 
It's just, it's, we've integrated it in such a way. And, you know, as I said, it's not all doubt. We can still have doubts about, you know, ourselves or what practice, but that the Buddha taught a path that leads to awakening. I think we've all touched that, have that faith, have that truth. And so what would it look like to live and practice as though that were the case? We're all stream enterers. We're all swimming in that stream. We have that good fortune and that capacity. You know, if you walked out the door or the end of your retreat, we all gave you a certificate, said, no doubt, stream enterer. And as I joked before, would it make a difference? Not, probably not really, but it also is in some ways, you know, as they say, the only thing between you and awakening is really truly believing that you're awakened and that it's our doubt that keeps us confused and separate. So again, I'm just playing with this a little bit. We can be so limited in our view of possibility, so judgmental sometimes about yourself. But the Buddha said again and again this was possible. And as I said in the text, countless can't add up how many people were awakened. And the, the famous ending of the Satipatthana Sutta, um, where he talks about the practice that we're doing here, where the Buddha said, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way, as in the practices of the four foundations, for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected. Either final knowledge here and now, which is our hunchit, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return. So the two, two uh, stages. And then he goes on to say, let alone seven years, bhikkhus, six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, let alone one year, six months, five months, four months, three months, let alone one month. He gets down to, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected. Seven days. That's all he said was needed. How long have you been here? <laughs> and we often joke, you know, we should, we should say, enlightenment guaranteed. You know, the Buddha says it. If you practiced that full, you know, all four foundations of mindfulness within, with that kind of depth and clarity without cease for seven days, guaranteed, I think we'd probably be pretty safe. But as they say, enlightenment is an accident, but retreats make us accident prone. You know, we create these conditions where this kind of awakening is possible. That, you know, whether it's classic stream entry or just an awakening that helps us be more free, more open, more possible. So, you know, there's often students, people asking, are you enlightened? Who's enlightened? Where do I go to find enlightenment? And, you know, it's interesting and it's helpful, but, you know, Ajahn Chah would say, how do I know? You know, people would come to him and say, am I enlightened yet? And he'd say, how do I know? You're, you're the one in, with the mind. And the most important thing, as I started out by saying, is, is there freedom here and now? It doesn't matter what experience you had, what certificates you got, what gold stars you had. Even yesterday doesn't matter. Unless that insight has been integrated and we live from that. That's what's important. Live from that. And as Ajahn Chah says, he says, if you let go a little, 
you get a little peace. You let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. You let go completely, complete peace. Sounds really simple, doesn't it? And finish with the words of Ajahn Sumedho, who's always so down to earth. Just seeing an anicca, dukkha, and anatta is limited to the conditioned realm. It is not the end of the path, nibbana. But don't hold nibbana up as some high ideal. Then we don't realize it when it's present. Bring nibbana to here and now, the point that includes everything. Nibbana is non-grasping. We just have to know what non-grasping is to recognize attachment when it happens. It's like this. Attachment is like this. You don't have to throw everything away to prove you are non-attached. So let's just let the words settle into silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.